What if I told you that being in the right place at the right time was not a circumstance of luck? What if I told you it's a skill that you could learn and leverage to achieve your goals and dreams? This is the Right Place Right Now podcast with Travis Fields and Brandon Johnson. If you've listened to our previous episodes, today's episode is going to be a little bit different from what you're used to. We want you guys to get to know us better, so Brandon and I decided to do a two-part series where we interview each other. In part one, I got to interview Brandon, and man, is there a lot of wisdom in his story. Brandon talks about the importance of realizing and leveraging your natural talents, what he learned from wandering around Europe for 90 days, what to do when your plans fall apart, and how we can learn to be slower to judge others. I can't wait for you guys to get a glimpse into Brandon's life and story and why the right place right now message is so important to him. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we are in part one of a part two series where you get to learn a little bit more about your hosts. I have the privilege of interviewing Brandon. How are you today, buddy? Oh, man, I'm so good. I got a bucket of coffee sitting across from you. It's lovely. Very good. I want to just get right in with kind of where you're at right now. What are you uh, what are you doing currently? Yep. So in my professional life outside of the podcast, I am what is called an OD consultant. And whenever I say that, it's funny, you, you were in my wedding back a little over a year ago now, and my best man in his speech was like, nobody knows what you do, Brandon. So it re- made me realize that I'm not really good at explaining what OD consulting is. So I'm going to take a crack at it here. If you think about a health coach and how they help people with their human body, an OD consultant is very similar in the way that it helps an organization. So a human body has a bunch of systems. It's got skin, bones your brain and neural pathways, your heart and blood vessels, and you know all the arteries and uh, veins and all that that go to it. You've got a bunch of different organ systems at work. All of these systems work quasi-independently, but they have to work in homeostasis with each other to, for your body to be healthy and for it to be effective, right? So if you're not getting electrical signals to your feet, then you start to have issues and hard time walking and your feet might actually even eventually die and start to sever themselves off. An organization is very similar. It's got systems that all work in theory independently, but they have to work in, in congruence with each other to make the organization successful. So you have HR, you have marketing, you have sales, you have the development of your products and services, you have the delivery of your products and services. There's all these pieces that come together to make sure that that organization, that business is operating well enough to move forward. So my job is to go in and kind of do a health assessment on an organization and say, okay, your morale is down because people feel like they're overworked, they're not getting enough work-like balance, or your sales isn't connecting well with your marketing team, they're sending different messages, so our job is to really go in and assess what systems are not working well together and then kind of help people in leadership positions put the pieces back. So right now in my role, it's a lot of one-on-one consulting with leaders. It's a lot of taking teams and putting them in the room and saying, how do we need to enhance what we're doing or work better with Team X so that the entire business works better? That sounds like something that you don't just wake up one day and say, I want to be an OD business consultant. <laughs> How'd you get there? The The short story is, is I actually started about 10 years ago now as a training and development 
um, basically an intern. So well, we can get into my hiatus a little bit, but at some point I moved back to Colorado and I kind of decided that I wanted to be in this professional space of teaching workshops to, to leaders, to business professionals. So it would be, you know, uh, how to communicate more effectively, how to lead teams better, things like that. And I got into this role of training eight hour, 16 hour classes where I was in a classroom pretty much all the time. And from those skill sets, it kind of evolved to small organizations across the state. When I say I worked for the state of Colorado, it was literally the business of the state of Colorado. So it was the Department of Administration. The Department of Revenue would call and be like, hey, that workshop on communication was great. Can you come in and facilitate us through something to help us communicate better? So I kind of just evolved it in my internal job into this role of, oh, this is what consulting is. I never really knew what consulting was, but over that period of the five years that I was working for the state of Colorado, it became this job, this career path that I'm actually pretty excited about. And it allows me to leverage a lot of my skills and talents. And it allows me to, um, I love business. I'm a junkie for people that are trying new things and and trying to implement processes and systems into their business. So it allows me to touch on that. And it's it's been an interesting journey. So after the state, I decided I wanted to be more consultant than training. And I just started applying for gigs. I just started throwing my, my resume around. And currently, I work for a company that we do mostly military department of defense consulting. Whenever we talk about big military budgets for Department of Defense spending, I'm working with those groups of people because they get basically a windfall of government money of in the tunes of sometimes of billions of dollars to go and build. Uh, one of the programs working with now is building a helicopter for the presidential cabinet. That helicopter is really old. There's a bunch of helicopters in that fleet. They need to create a new one to bring it up to date. And you got a bunch of military, ex-military, and engineers and they're great at what they do they can build anything and make it fly and it's fascinating but sometimes they're not great at the business systems and processes so we're literally just there to help remind them hey you've got all these other functions over here it's not just about engineering and building stuff you have to actually run the business run your budget conduct human resources communicate goals and expectations that's our role and that sounds super cool so you're in this consultant role and you're loving it, but you didn't always do that specifically. What led you to thinking maybe I want to be a consultant more than just like facilitating trainings and stuff? Is there is there something that kind of tipped you off to like, hey, I'm I'm kind of good at this. I kind of like it. Maybe I should follow that specifically. I, I noticed this pattern about myself a long time ago, but I go through these seasons where I get really, for lack of a better word, bored with what I'm doing. And I was at the state of Colorado for five years doing training. I was in a classroom three days a week. And then the other time was like certificates and registration and, and admin work. So I was in the classroom a lot, teaching a lot of classes. I, I kind of just get bored. I kind of reach this, this point where, okay, I've gotten everything that I think I can get out of this. And I'm not the best at it, but I'm above normal and I've worked that skill set. So like now I'm ready to go on to the next thing. And just through the nature of that job and the things that people were asking me to help with, consulting was the next, the next natural stepping stone. It's funny that you asked that though, because I'm already realizing that consulting is so close to training and development that it, it's only been a few years, like three, since I've been in this consulting role, I'm already kind of getting like antsy to find what's next. And it, it's, it's my seasons. It's what I do. Yeah. But I think that's okay though. I think 
the the people who are always looking for what's next are the people who push the envelope forward, and that's okay. I, I think a lot of people look at that as a as a weakness or a you know like scatterbrained or can't focus on anything. But really, I think it's important. So how can you embrace that and not you know you even kind of said it as with a little bit of negative connotation. How can you embrace it and not feel like it's a negative? Yeah. No, that's a really good question. And I do. I, I think that's really smart that you caught on that because, you know, we come from an era where the generation before us and how we were raised was you commit to something for long term and you stay there until, you know, 20, 30 years. And I realized early on, like that just was not the path for me. And I've always kind of had this like, Ugh, I feel bad because I feel like I'm leaving people behind or like I haven't given them enough. But but that that's not true. Like I, I bust my tail for companies when I'm there. But I, I do have this conversation in my head that's like, uh, you probably should have given them another year or two. But it's never stopped me from jumping ship after a year if I'm either stagnant, feel stale, or a better opportunity arises. I'm 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 one to take on something that I'm not prepared for. I'm okay with that. Sure. Yeah. Always always looking for the next opportunity. I, I think that's a great quality. Let's go back a little bit. So you were at the state doing training. I know you've done a ton of different things that are <laughs> seemingly unrelated to each other. Let's go back and kind of walk through those. Where did you start? So you're in high school. Did you, oh, let's start here. Did you know these qualities about yourself, even like as a kid or a high schooler, or when did you notice that you, you like new and you like thinking outside the box and, and you, you get bored easy? When did you start kind of noticing that pattern? You know, I didn't until recently, but looking back on it now, especially high school, I think that's a great example. I was, you know, we went to a small school, uh, like well, graduated with 40 kids small. So in a school that size, you have the opportunity that if you want, you can be involved in literally everything. And I was, I was a three sport athlete. I was in student council. I was on a ton of committees. I spent my time at the school, 7am to 7pm, five to six nights a week. And then if there were games on weekends, I was there. And I didn't realize it then, but even some of like my friend's parents were, Brandon's always busy. Like Brandon always finds ways to keep himself busy. And and actually recently I just realized that I've lost connection with that. Like that actually kind of fuels me to have a lot of irons in the fire and a lot of things that I'm excited about. And with COVID and everything, I haven't been able to do but like my job in this. And I've noticed I've gotten pretty depressed about it. I've been pretty sad and pretty like in a low place. And just starting this podcast gave me another outlet and it's it's kind of reignited the little flame, but the aha of, I need to find things that excite me and get me involved in communities and get me involved in building things and being engaged goes all the way back to high school. So specific to high school, no, I don't think I recognize those qualities then, but there were breadcrumbs. Did you find yourself intentionally being on those committees and in all of that involvement, or did you find people coming to you and asking you to be in those things? I think it was a combination of both. I think it definitely was a combination of both. So an example is student council. I ran for student council president like middle school, which in middle school really doesn't mean anything. Uh, except it for it's kind of like your first attempt to try to like lead something and, and be a part of an organized event outside of sports. And then I lost and middle school, you know, I just felt bad about it. And I felt like people were picking on me and I, you know, I was going through my weird hormonal stage and trying to discover myself. 
And then in high school, I actually had somebody come and ask me, hey, you need to represent the freshman class because there's no one else to do it. And I was like, well, I guess if I'm the only person, then I'll do it. And then that evolved all the way through my senior year where I was a student council president. And even in that experience, and kind of to answer your question and connect some of these breadcrumbs, there was a point in my sophomore year where we had a big pep rally going on. Um, small towns, pep rallies are a big deal, right? Like, like parents would come to our pep rallies and kind of see what we had going on. Uh, and nobody on the student council body wanted to lead the event, to emcee the event. And I'm a sophomore. Like, typically, that's a junior or senior gig, right? But nobody wanted to do it. So they volunteered me. They're like, oh, Brandon's got the energy to do this. And he's done some of this kind of stuff with like uh, veterans banquets. I had led some of those through some workshop, through some classes that I was taking at the time. So they literally just asked me to do it. And I didn't know this until college, but that was, that is a pivotal point in my life. And it still is to this day because give me a microphone and an audience and I'm a different person. Like I'm on a different level. I'm operating at my best. Uh, my energy is different. It's like that you hear people talk about the zone whenever they're in sports, like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, they would get in the zone. Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, like where you kind of just black out and everything's slow motion. That's me with a microphone and a stage of an audience. And I didn't realize it then. I just thought I was a, you know, 15 year old kid having a really good time and getting everybody's attention. Carry that to the university, to college. So I actually went to college to get a degree in accounting. So definitely not in alignment with training and development or consulting. Or a microphone. Or a microphone, right? <laughs> but I, I remember being, you and I both started working when we were like, I was 12. I don't remember how old you, but you were similar, right? 13. 13. Yeah, the summer I was 13. Yep. So I'm getting paid by some dude that owns a ranch to fix fences. And I, I remember doing my taxes when I was probably like 14 or 15 years old. I finally made enough money to have to pay taxes. And, and I'm sitting there and I remember my parents saying like, you should become an accountant. Look how easy this job is and how much money they're making. And I hung on to that. And I was like, I'm going to be an accountant. I'm good at math. It's easy. It's plush. It makes money. And the first semester, I was like, this sucks. <laughs> like, this isn't <laughs> for me. Man, I hate being just like sitting down and doing work like that. It's so tedious. I don't have good attention to detail. But I didn't know that about myself. I was just doing what I was supposed to be doing. So kind of through college, I was I was involved in a lot of stuff still. Like I was working in the athletics department. Um, I actually had tried out for the basketball team and got cut. So I was an assistant, undergraduate assistant coach, just so I could be involved. So I've got basketball still in my life. I'm still working at the athletic department. We're still running events. Winter comes. We don't have a football team. So basketball was our big sport. We do a winter sports kickoff. Nobody wants to MC the event. This guy, pick this guy. So we put, I don't know, in our high school, it was like 200 people plus a couple parents in the stands. And I thought I was really killing it. At college, it was a few thousand people and it was people from all over the community. Like we had, um, uh, what was it? Brandon Marshall, who was a receiver at the Denver Broncos that year. He was one of our dunk competition judges. Like it was a pretty big event. So I'm, I'm there and I've got this crowd rowdy and I'm in face paint and I've got this crazy outfit on. And that's like on a Saturday or a Friday. On Monday morning, I've got a message that somebody comes in and hands me while I'm in class. And it's a letter from the president of the university. 
she calls me into her office sometime that week. I create a meeting with her and I go in and she goes, what are you going to do with that skill? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like I was literally, I was probably a little bit buzzed because I'm, you know, in college and I was just having a good time. I was entertaining a bunch of people and we were doing dunk competitions and three point shooting competitions. And, you know, it was fun for me. I didn't think about doing anything with it. And the moment she asked that question, something changed in me. I could literally do something in this capacity for a living. It had never crossed my mind. And I still kind of fight with that because I'm like, shoot, I should be a freaking Ryan Seacrest type. Like I need my own or uh, I need a TRL type show, right? Uh, (laughs) You'd be so good on TRL. Let's bring that back. (laughs) Uh, But that, that, that told me that like I could start to leverage those things that made me excited and made me passionate. So I, I actually tried to get into teaching for a while. The university cut the teaching program going into my senior year. So I let that dream go. I was still kind of holding on to basketball as my career path because I thought that might give me what I was looking for. I let the teaching go. I got a degree in marketing because I was at a business school. And I had already had a bunch of credits because I was going to teach business, teach marketing, teach things like that. So it was like, just finish this, get done, and then figure out what the next move is. So I graduate and I actually get an opportunity. One of my one of my buddies, he's embedded in college basketball, and I thought I really wanted to coach. And that's part of why I wanted to teach. But the opportunity came up for me to go and be a part of a collegiate program in Utah. Uh, so I spent a year there, and it was a year, man. I was living in a 20-foot pull-behind camper trailer in a KOA campground in the middle of Utah winter, walking to the public KOA shower every morning before I went to the office. Our coach was kind of old school. Everything, All of our recordings had to be on VHS tape. So we spent hours recording film. I mean, if you're not familiar with what goes into like a scouting report, every dude that touches the court gets his own tape of the team you're about to play. And if they've played 10 games, he's got 10 tapes because you want to see what he did each game. So 10 dudes on a team, 10 games, individual tapes on VHS, which is real time. You know, you can't just download it. You actually got to watch it and record it. A lot of late nights. So I'm coaching. I'm realizing like, eh, this probably isn't the lifestyle I want to live. I love the guys. I love the, I love the atmosphere. I love basketball. College basketball is like, oh, it's near and dear to my heart. I'm with you, brother. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing like this time of year. Like, we're getting into March Madness. I'm I'm pumped. Uh, yeah, I'm about to take my four-day vacation. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do the extended weekend. Uh, and I just realized, like, even though I love basketball, this isn't for me. So after a year, the, the, the catalyst of that was one night I was napping in the locker room. We had this sweet plush leather couches in the locker room. ESPN's on. Me and the other two coaches had been up all night cutting film, recruiting for the big tournament we had coming up. We had like three games over five nights or something. So we got a ton of film to go through because we don't know who we're playing. So we got to do scouting reports for like 10 teams. So we're up cutting film all night. We get like a two-hour nap in. Alarm goes off, and I look over, and one of the assistant coaches is getting up. He's like, hey, I got to run home and get my kids and take them to school. I'll be back in an hour. And I just sat there, and I was like – He's got two middle school age kids. And he spent the night here in the locker room with me. Is this what I want my life to be? Do I want to run home and like pick my kids up and take them to school and then come back to the office where I've already spent 30 plus hours? 
I don't think so. I don't think that's what I want to do. So that led me to coming back to Colorado, bartending, working restaurants. Uh, I got a job at a call center. Uh, that was a miserable experience. We don't need to talk about that because if you've ever worked in a call center, you know how demoralizing of a life that is. Um, I walked out of that job, started thinking that the only path for me was to go back to school because that's what you did. And it was in 2008 when I graduated from my undergrad degree. So there were no jobs. Um, coaching floated me a year. And then when I came back, it was like, you can wait tables. There's no good jobs or get in a call center and try to like grow through a company. So I started applying for graduate assistantships, which basically is schools will pay for your degree and even stipend if they if you're working for them and they're getting value out of them. So I started applying in athletic departments, ended up at Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, working in the athletic academic advising department. So student athletes, they get their own athletic or academic advisors. Uh, just because their schedules are so crazy that they kind of have to piecemeal those curriculums and those degree programs together. So I was in there and I was serving as like a tutor. I was overseeing study hall. I was helping people plan for career progression afterwards. And that led me into, I got to do a couple of life skills type training where I was teaching people how to write resumes or interview or things like that. Things that were very practical for after college. And I was like, this is fun. This is a good time. I get to create the curriculum. I get to stand in front of everybody. I get to joke and like help them achieve some goals. And then I just tucked that away. I never did anything with it for a while. In Texas, a series of events happens. I finish school. I'm still just bartending, trying to figure out what the next move is. I've got a master's degree in education administration and education leadership. I've got this bachelor's degree in marketing that I've never done anything with. And now I'm trying to figure out my next play. And at the time I was dating a girl who we thought we were going to go to Europe and teach English as a second language until we kind of figured out because she was just graduating for her, from her undergraduate program the same year. And we had been together for a couple of years. So we're like, well, let's go to Europe and teach English for a while and figure out what we want to do. So I went through all the credentialing in the middle of that. We ended up breaking up. I was heartbroken. You know, this is a girl I was going to move to Europe with and we were going to blah, 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 blah. So I still went to Europe. I was like, you know what? Forget it. I've got my credentials. I've got nothing here. I put everything I owned in the back of a Saturn L300, which is a small little sedan. Moved from Texas back to Colorado. Moved back in with my parents for like six weeks or so. In that six weeks, I got a job at Pizza Hut because I wanted some more spending cash in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> like, like literally I was like, I'm here. I didn't tell them this obviously, but I was like, I just, I took on like two or three small jobs and I was like, I'm just going to put a bunch of cash away cause I'm leaving. So it's like September of 2013. I go to Europe, I go to Italy to teach English and that experience kind of evolves and falls apart. But there were a lot of ahas out of that trip that led me back to Colorado. And that's, that trip actually allowed me to connect a lot of the dots from high school, from the, from the, uh, like you asked, the things that people asked me to do. I was like, okay, these are skills that other people see in me. Having a microphone in front of people, leading events, leading groups of people, the president of the university asking me what I was going to do with that. All of that came to surface when I, when I was in Europe and 
it, it allowed me to start really figuring out. And I was out in Europe for 90 days, just kind of wandering around no man's land. It allowed me to start to put these pieces together so that when I came back, I was super intentional. I got a job at a bar and everybody I talked to, I said, I'm getting into training and development. And one of our bar regulars happened to be one of my university professors from Johnson and Wales. And he goes, oh, you're trying to get into training and development. There's a position at the state of Colorado that I know that just opened up. Let me connect you. And like that, my training and development career started. And that was in 2014, I guess. That's a lot of different things in what, 10 years? Was it even 10 years that all of that happened? So my... Or was it less than that? I graduated Johnston and Wales in 2008. So it was like 12 years. Okay. So in 12 years, you did six, seven, eight different things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of different perspective, though. Are there patterns that you've seen or like you, you've taken something from each one of those experiences that now you use today, right? Is that something that you did along the way or is that something you've kind of looked back and learned? I've always had this innate ability to know that something's about to run its course. That's a pattern I've always been really, really in tune with. So the job at the call center, for instance, I knew like, I'll tell you a little bit about that story. They had this system where they would basically assess your calls and you had like 10 criteria points to hit to pass. If you didn't pass one, then you had to go through like training. And they had this rule that in order to get promoted, you had to have six months of perfect call stats. So I'm like six months in, well, it was more than that. I guess it was like six months after your training. So three months of training and then I'm nine months in. And I'm like, I'm not spending my time on these calls because everybody that calls me hates me. I'm in customer retention and they're mad. Everybody that calls you hates your guts. And I was like, this ha- the writing's already on the wall. So I'm going to at least try to get promoted. And I had this little old lady on the phone and she was having a hard time just getting her remote control to work. And I'm assessing her and she wants to cancel her service. And I'm like, I finally get it fixed but I didn't upsell her, which is one of the checkboxes I had to hit. And they listened to that call and I failed. So the rule is if you fail one, your six month window starts over. You've got to pass all the tests again for six months. And you're like almost at the end of your six months of perfection. Right. Like I'm already applying for promotions as they open. Like they're already starting to feel that for me. Do you know what those promotions would have been? Like, was it a goal you had or what was, what was the job? What was the next job? What would it have been? It would have been basically just like leading a team of call center, uh, people that are receiving calls. So basically how it's set up is you got a bunch of cubicles and someone in the middle is helping them sort through those weirder instances where this person can't get something because a rocket, you know, is in the way of the satellite or something. They've just got like a different level of expertise and they're not answering calls all day. They're actually doing more management of the people. Okay. So still pretty rough. Still pretty rough. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't glamorous, but it was going to get me off the phone eight hours a day. So I failed and they told me I failed and they told me I had to start over the next day. Some lady's cussing me out and I told her to shut the F up. I was like, if you shut the F up for a second, you know, I'd already fixed this for you. I was just at my wits end and I look over And my boss popped up and the three managers were coming around the corner. They were listening on that call because I had raised so much hell about failing my previous call that they were listening in on me and they were coming to fire me. So I took my headset off, set it down. I turned around. I said, I quit. And I walked out. Only job I've ever walked out of. 
but to bring this back to your question, that's a pattern I've noticed. I am, if I'm already running my course, the state of Colorado, I knew it was running its course. I start looking for the next thing before this thing ends. And that's something I've always been really good at is, is knowing when the writing's on the wall for me personally, knowing when it doesn't feel right, when it's already fulfilled its purpose, it's time to move on. I, I feel like we have to go back to Europe. I don't think we can leave it at, so I wandered around Europe for 90 <laughs> days. <laughs> we need, need to dig into that a little. Okay. What, why did you, so you go to Europe for teaching English as a second language. Mm -hmm. You're in Italy. What happened next? Yeah. So, so I got my certificates. The way that companies overseas run this system is they won't, you can't just like interview online and get a job because they want to make sure that you can get there. You can pay for a plane ticket and that you can have a place to live. And so they literally won't interview you until you show up. Okay. So I've, I've got all these companies on the phone and I'm showing up without a, without a visa to actually work. I'm in my 90 day window. And the goal is, and this is kind of a, a backwards way of doing this, but a lot of people do it this way is go in, start doing some English as a second language for like students or for businesses on the side, like pay cash or whatever, until you get some relationships and some company will sponsor you to stay there. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm going to work that process. I'm like, sweet. I've got a friend in Milan, Italy. She's already said I could stay with her for like a month. I'm going to go, I'm going to hit the ground running. I've already set up like three or four interviews. Let's go do this thing. They've got my resumes. They got my certificates. I've already done the, the, the curriculum development that they asked for, stuff like that. So I get there. First couple of days are awesome. I'm just hanging out in Milan, Italy, walking around. I've, I show up with literally like two big suitcases because I'm planning on moving there. I mean, they were huge. Like people were looking at me funny, carrying them down the street. I stop and I buy a cell phone. Like I'm moving there. I'm planning on living there. I got an Italian number. Everything's fun. That next Monday. So I think I, it was like a Wednesday or Thursday. I got there. We hung out over the weekend. That next Monday, I have three interviews set up with the the major companies uh, for teaching English as a second language. The way that Europe is so old school, especially Milan, Italy, they have these old skeleton key doors where you've seen the inside of a door and whenever you lock it, literally all these bars move. So that's the kind of door that I was in, in this, in this apartment building. And they only had one skeleton key. So the lady I was staying with and, and her roommate, he left that day and one of them took the key and you need the key to unlock from the inside because it's this old metal skeleton key panel. So you need it to open and close the door from both sides. So I'm locked in this 10th story apartment building with no way out. Like literally at one point I was like, if there's a fire, I'm screwed because they don't have fire escapes. Like I would have to jump off my balcony down to another balcony and hopefully I could get out their door. So I'm losing my freaking mind because I get up and I shower and I've got my suit and my tie on, right? And I'm looking fresh and I'm going to go be this, this professional and I can't get out of the door. So I'm wandering around in my tie and I'm like freaking out and I'm trying to call these companies and there's language barriers. And basically what two of the three said to me was, if you can't get here today, don't worry about it. We have other people. And I was like, I really just lost this opportunity. And it's like noon at this point is all. So I sat down and I wrote my dad a letter and I was like, Hey, I think I just blew this. I don't know what to do. And then as I was writing that letter, something evolved. And I was just like, you know what? 
I don't even really want to teach English. This was just something that me and that girl were going to do. And it was just to get me over here. Why the hell do I want to spend my time over here teaching English? I'm here. I've got a bunch of money in my pocket. I'm going to just go explore and see what happens. So the next day, I walk down to mailboxes, etc. I put my stuff into like four pretty large size boxes. It cost me a ton of money. I sent all my stuff back to my parents' house except for a backpack that I had a pair of jeans, the shoes I was wearing, a couple pairs of socks, a couple pairs of underwear, two t-shirts, and a hoodie. And I just started walking. Um, I think I left her place on Wednesday. So I hadn't even been there a week yet. And I had no plan. The only thing I knew is I had a buddy from college that was going to be in Portugal two weeks from that day. So I was like, dude, I'll meet you there. So from Milan, I took a train to Torino. That was my first night. And let me tell you, that was so uncomfortable because I'd never used the train system before. I was in a foreign country. I didn't speak any of the languages. Luckily in Europe, they're pretty accommodating to Americans and English speakers. But when I got off the train in Torino and it was already getting dark and I had no idea what a hostel even was or how to find an apartment, I was panicking, man. I think I spent like $300 on a hotel room that first night because I didn't know what to do. And then the next the next train ride, I had Wi-Fi. So I was like, oh, I need to look into hostels. That's what I should do because I did some Googling and I found a hostel in uh, the French Riviera was my next train stop. And I stayed there for a couple of days and I met this guy named Shu from China and we had a good time. That, that sounds so scary to me. Like all of that unknown and the, the, the language barriers and like you have no idea what currency this country even uses that you're going to next, you know, like no plan, no agenda, no, no resources besides what's in your backpack. You know, it, it really was at times like that first night in Torino, Italy, the couple first couple nights in in France what really broke for me my third stop was actually barcelona and i found this amazing hostel where the the cool thing about hostels is everybody is just down to explore and connect and adventure and is open to just learning about people like it's the most inviting community of strangers you'll ever find and and i found that in my third host my second hostel my third stop I found this awesome little group of people that actually from that, there are people, so I, I stayed in Europe for 90 days and I did a full circle. I went from Barcelona, Spain, over to Portugal, out to Ireland, and I came back to Germany through Switzerland. And then I actually left Italy again to see my friend. So as I'm jumping around, from my third stop, I actually came back through Switzerland to meet some of those friends from 90 days before because that's where they were from. And I came and stayed with them. Like, how crazy is that? You meet somebody in this random community, hostile environment, and hey, whenever you come through in 90 days, you can stay with us. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I We know some people from Nepal that we met uh, that were intern, or not intern, exchange students with some cousins down in, in Albuquerque, and it was the same thing. And I, I think that's something that's kind of missing in America is that friendliness and that willingness to just make friends. And, you know, we, we meet these kids at, at a graduation party. They're from Nepal. And they're, you know, after two days down there, they're like, when are you going to come see us? Like, come hang out. We want to show you our country. You know, right. Americans don't do that. Right. We don't. So it's, that's such good, 
perspective and just such a unique experience that probably we should all have, but not many of us do like that. The thought of that, doing that by myself, just that scares me. <laughs> and, it, and it scares a lot of people. It scared me, honestly, like whenever I left, I was in a bad spot. I was really kind of tore up about the breakup and redefining myself because I just got a master's degree and I was having a hard time and it allowed me to just figure it out. Like it was a nice little hiatus to like, I didn't have to worry about what anybody else wanted to do. Like if I want to get up and go just sit and look at the waves in the Southern part of France and drink coffee for 10 hours, I can do that. If I want to stay in my room and sleep all day because I'm in a bad spot, I can do that. It was really nice to not have to be responsible to anyone or anything for a while. And it gave me the space I needed to start connecting all those dots that we had just talked about. Yeah. What were some of those dots? So on my trip, I started playing with the idea of if I'm going to leverage a microphone and an audience, I've always been intrigued with the idea of doing stand-up comedy. So that was part of what took me out to Ireland was they actually do a out in Galway. They do a long, like a, it's like 10 days of, it's a comedy event around the entire city. So I went out there and I was literally watching two or three comedy shows a day. Some were plays, some were stand up, some were productions. Like it was anything you can imagine, but it was all based around comedy. Then there were a couple open mics and I did them. I was like, you know what? Let's see if I'm as good on a microphone in front of a crowd as I thought I am. Um, I had played with this a little bit in Texas. I had done a couple open mic nights at this one place. And, and I, I've realized really quickly, like I have a natural ability for this and I have whenever I can get myself in the right place and I do the right prep work. So I already kind of had about a five minute set that I was working out and I was really comfortable with. And I took it there and it, it went pretty well. You know, there's obviously some cultural disconnect between jokes and stuff. But I, I really thought that that was going to be the thing that I came back and did because after that, I, I spent that probably two weeks in, in Ireland and 10 of those days were at the comedy show. I, I realized like there's something about being on a microphone in front of people. There's something about entertaining. There's something about that environment that I really love and enjoy and it fuels me. And when I say that, I mean, in the moment, it's awesome, but I'm an introvert at heart. Like I after those nights, I would spend the whole next day in the hostel just by myself journaling and reading. Like it, it does crash me, but there's so much life coming out of me that I have to recoup basically. So when I moved back to Colorado, I moved back in with my parents um, down in, down in Peyton, east of Colorado Springs. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do comedy for like, why not? I have nothing. I literally have nothing. I spent all my money in Europe. I, have two degrees that I don't want to do anything with. I have no relationships. I have no place to go. I am homeless on a couch in my parents' house. So I tried to do stand-up comedy in the Springs. I did like 15 open mic nights. And some of these were open mic nights. Like it was me on a microphone and a bunch of dudes playing poker. And they just put me in the corner with a microphone. And nobody heard a word I said. Like no, not a word. It, it's a terrible experience. You want to talk about feeling uncomfortable? Give yourself a spotlight where nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I don't think that I even knew that you did all of that in Colorado Springs. I would have I would have come and watched. <laughs> like I would have been there. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. So that's also a pattern of mine is I have this 
this piece of me that thinks I need to do this stuff on my on my own. And that's recently just broke. Part of why we're doing this. I feel like I need to handle it, manage it, push it through, figure out what it is for me. I don't need the support of other people. I can figure this out. Recently, you, me, one of our really good friends, one of my good friends from college, you're close with Chili, who will eventually be on the show. We were kind of fiddling with the idea of some other business. And before that, I had this aha, like I really wanted to work with the two of you guys because I realized like I'm not a great solopreneur. And by not great, I mean, I suck at it. I am terrible at operating solo because I am, I've got squirrel syndrome, everything new, shiny, flashy. I move on. I had tried to start consulting businesses, training and development businesses, blogs. I've, I've probably got 10 of those that have failed miserably because I just didn't put the work in. And I came to the aha of like, I'm a really good number two to somebody. And that was kind of hard for me to swallow because I always thought that I wanted to be the, the solo guy, the number one, the, the one that ran and did everything. And it's not like I'm okay with making decisions. I'm okay with pushing things in, in a direction that they need to go, but there's something to, and you mentioned this on your show the other day to that personal motivation and that personal urgency that, that is not innate in me and maybe something I need to work on. But I know that if I'm working for a company like my current company and I like what I do and I believe in the leadership and I believe in what we do has value, nobody's going to outwork me. Like I'm a really good number two and I will push, like I've been promoted in my current company. I've only been there two and a half years. I've been promoted three times. And it's, it's not because it is because I'm asking and I'm telling them I want that opportunity, but it's also because like, I see the vision they have for this place and I and I'm excited about it. Yeah. No, I, I think all of uh, what you just described is just knowing your strengths. And I, I think I talked about that in my episode too, of like, I got this brewery to the point where I'm the manager of it now and I wasn't doing a good job of it. Mm -hmm. And I just, in the past couple months have realized that I'm not a manager. I'm not the guy who does the day to day and I'm not, you know, I'm not a logistics guy. And I've really embraced that, the fact that I'm a dreamer and a visionary. And when I put myself into the position where that's what I'm spending my time doing and all of my energy doing, just in the past few months, like we have completely revamped how we do everything at the brewery because I have intentionally set myself up to be able to think ahead and not have to think about what's going on today. Mm -hmm. And it just, it makes such a difference. And so just the fact that you can say, I know I'm a good number two. I want to attach to somebody else's vision and hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that you're able to admit that, I think that that's a good place. Like that is a place where a lot of people are not honest with themselves. Yeah. And it's a, it's a hard aha. Whenever, whenever I decided like I was going to do great things, I really thought I had to do it on my own. And that paradigm shift for me is hard. And I'm starting to realize like, <laughs> we were talking about this with Liz, I think the other day, like, I think I would be a great hype man for a band, like a flavor Flav type, <laughs> like, like, I don't really bring any skill set or and I don't know, maybe flavor Flav did, maybe he's got a lot of musical background that I don't know about. But like, like, I don't really bring even in my current role, I'm, I'm the, currently the director of knowledge management, which means I am responsible for oversight of all of our, our content making sure it's standardized, making sure it's up to, you know, up to industry trends, a training, a facilitation, consulting tools. That's my job is to make sure all that stuff is relevant. Make sure it works, does what it's supposed to. 
And I'm terrible at the details, like standardizing products and services, templates, branding guidelines. I hate that kind of stuff. But I've got someone on my team who was phenomenal at it, and I will hype her up to the point where she thinks she's changing the world. And that's what I'm good at. I'm I'm a really good hype man. Even though I might not be bringing too much to the table, I can get people excited about stuff. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've read some, and I can't remember who it is, but they have this acronym and it's like, it talks about from the dreamer to the person who kind of takes it to the team. And then there's the guy that implements it. And you, you know, the, the end game is the guy that executes it. And it takes all four of those steps. Hmm. And it was talking about the, the advancer, which is kind of the number two, like the visionary has the idea, gives it to the next guy in line, who's the advancer. And that's how it actually gets put into practice. And that, I think that he said that like on his assessment, and again, I wish I could remember who it was, but anyway, on his assessment, like 10 to 15% of people are, have the skill set and the personality set to be the advancer. Like it's a small niche and it is hmm. the most important one because you can have a vision and it doesn't go anywhere and you can be executing all these things that don't matter. But if you don't have the guy that who's, who's putting those two dots together, it's going to fall apart or it won't even get started in the first place. So, Interesting. you know, knowing that about yourself, that that's actually a pretty small niche of people who are, have that skill set. Yeah. That's, I, I didn't even know that. Right. Like I, I still don't know that because I've gotten into, I, I'm a certified life coach through ICF and I hate life coaching because it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one, me asking you a lot of questions, getting, and I realized, like, I don't have to do this this way. I just hate doing it this way. If I'm just showing up in that relationship as a as your hype man, that's a per, that's what I can bring to your table. And I haven't figured out how to really do that yet. But it's something that I've recently started to realize is my skills are valuable in that set. I just got to figure out what to do with them. Yeah. No, I think that's the key. That's a good point. You you've spent all these years doing all of these different things and kind of pulling all these dots out of it that now you're connecting. Mm -hmm. So how do you take all that knowledge and all of those experiences and all like everything you've learned about yourself and about your strengths and weaknesses and like, what's, what's next? What do, what do you do with that? So this project with you is a big part of that. I know you're a visionary. You, you and I have had the vision for this and what this could become because we've got a lot of other ideas around this. Stay tuned. We're coming at you with some stuff. <laughs> Is that a teaser? <laughs> yeah, a teaser. Um, like we, we have a vision for this thing to be much bigger than just us on a radio show. And and I we've been bought into that for several years now. We just didn't have it figured out right. So this is one of those dots. It's it's allowing me to be on a mic, to entertain, to it's a little excuse me, a little bit different than a little different platform and format that I'm used to of having people in a crowd still fuels me still excites me a lot of dots are being filled by this and where this is going but in the same time this isn't going to pay my bills right so i still have to do my other job and i still want to be successful in that and i still want to fulfill my responsibilities as a consultant but i also know that there's writing on the wall for that not because i don't like it or because i don't like the people i work with or because I just get bored. I'm just like, okay, I've reached a place in this to where I understand enough about what consulting is and I have enough experience that I can step into this role and I'm pretty good at it. Okay, I've accomplished what I need to accomplish. Let's go to the next thing. This for me is that next thing, hopefully, 
but there's still there's a there's a gap there that honestly I have no idea what I'm going to do with yet because this may not be this may not float our lifestyle in a decade, you know. So I've got to be able to pay bills until then. So what am I going to do? I'm not sure yet. Sure. Yeah, but I I mean we're putting in the work right now. We talk about that a lot. We're putting in the work right now that we're not getting paid for and it's the it's an important step. I, like you have to put in the work before the reward comes typically. So I think we're doing that. But it's that's a good point. Like what do you you still have to pay the bills? So what does that look like? And how you know, I ask everybody this, is there fear in that for you? Like are you, are you scared of what the future looks like or are you scared of putting yourself out there? What are the fears for you in this? So I've never really, until recently, and we can get into what this last year's looked like in a minute, but really until this year, and maybe even a little bit before this year, I had no fear of putting myself out there. I was willing to be the guy that, you know, I'm a sophomore, give me the microphone. I'm the undergrad, give me the microphone and put me in front of a bunch of people. Like taking on new jobs, I will apply for jobs that I have no business applying for because I think I am smart enough or clever enough, whatever, to figure out enough of it when I get there to be successful. So like, I'll be honest, like I'll lie on applications to, to make myself look just a little bit better to get a job that I'm not quite qualified for because I know when I get there, I'll rise to the level that they're expecting. I just know that about myself. So whenever you ask the question of like, what's the fear out of this? Only recently have I started having fear. And this could be just because I just got married, right? Before it was just me and I had no other responsibilities. No fear. I'm moving home and I have nothing in my life. Forget it. Now I'm responsible to someone else, to a vision that we've built, a future that we've kind of outlined that we want to want to live and, and work towards. So there is fear for that right now, especially right now, like, my wife, Sarah, she, she got laid off of two jobs when COVID started. She, she had been working at a, at a bar where we met for, I don't know, 10 years or something. And they closed the doors and won't be opening back up. And she had just gone through like a three-year process to get a degree in travel. She was redefining her career path because that wasn't her background. So she got a job in corporate travel. And as you know, travel came to a screeching halt in her company the second one shut down. So she lost both those jobs. So now we're just operating solely on what I can provide. That's terrifying, man. What like what is the fear there? It's that responsibility. It's 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 honestly what it is is the the fallback that we always had her and I was working in the industry. We could get a bar job and make hand over fist cash really quickly at any point in our life because we had we had always dabbled in that and we had connections in that. So at any point, if anything fell apart, I can go get a bartending job where I'm making a few hundred bucks a night. Like that was always a security blanket. And with this, that's gone. Like if I lose my job tomorrow and both of us are unemployed, what's next? I have no idea. That's terrifying to me. Now, I don't think like one of the things I'm really good at is whenever crap hits the fan is I get blinders on and I'm a problem solver. I'm like, okay, what are we going to do about this? To a fault. Like my wife wants me to just listen sometimes. And I'm like, how are we going to fix that? And she'll have to like verbally smack me and bring me back to like, just listen. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think every dude struggles with that. <laughs> I, I'm the same way. I'm I'm definitely a problem solver, and I, we've had that conversation too. But yeah, like I, I guess to rephrase the question, what are the things that you find yourself not doing because of fear? You're you're obviously not scared of new and unknown and and getting out there, uh, right? But that, I don't think that means you're necessarily fearless everywhere. So where where is that for you? I think some of that fear has what has led to my, and I'm still playing with this. I just had the aha like a in the last year of like I'm a good number two. I'm still not sure that that's the thing, but right now that's where I'm sitting. Some of that's fear based. I know that for sure. Some of that is this the fear of being solely responsible for building something and having responsibility to employees and customers and and having all that on me. That that's a fear for sure. And it has limited me and prevented me from starting several things, coaching businesses, training and development businesses, things like that. I think there's also, I, I have a fear of like what, of judgment of whenever we put this out, what are people going to think? What are the people going to say? How are they going to feel about it? Is it going to be as exciting as we think it is to other people? You know, I'm, I'm, we're going through these interviews and we're having amazing conversations and I'm learning so much from these people. And my fear is that when we put this out, no one cares. And that's hard for me. Or they listen to it and they're like, man, you guys have no business being in this space. <laughs> yeah. Like that. Yeah, I get that one. <laughs> that scares the crap out of me. And, and I do that at work, right? Like I, I'm, Oh, this is a good, this is a micro example. So I'm in this new director position. My job is standardization of products, all the products that we deliver to our clients. And the lady that's working with me, she's got like 10 of them ready to go. They just need to be approved by my CEO, my co-CEOs, both of them. And I'm having a hard time pulling that trigger to be like, hey, will you guys literally judge these documents and send them back to me and tell me what you want different? I, I'm having, I've, they've been sitting in my inbox for a little over, probably almost two weeks, a little over a week at least. And I'm having a really hard time because that judgment freezes me up in the moment. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Especially being redheaded, everybody's judging me, man. Oh, I don't judge you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that that's, that's interesting. I, I know most people would be terrified to live the life you've lived so far. Yeah. Just to have that different perspective of like, I'm not scared of that at all. People say, man, how, how, how could you go to Italy for 90 days and not even know where you're staying tonight? Right. Um, you know, and that's not a fear for you, but, but other things are. So, um, yeah, I, thanks for sharing that. I actually want more of that. Like I've been talking to Sarah, I was like, I'm going to need a solo trip in the next five years where I don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I that's another good self-assessment. Right. <laughs> I would never, I'd go there with you, but I'd never go by myself. <laughs> do it. Oh, that's a good time. So what, what's next? What do you think is next? I know you're talking about kind of this consulting thing is, is running its course. What do you see being next for you? I keep journals. So on my desk right now, I've got these two little journals that serve different purposes. I've got my big black journal that I've showed you. It's right here. It's just got a bunch of stuff stacked on it. I have this practice where whenever I finish a journal, I go back and I read the whole thing and I just like highlight and take notes out of it. So I had just finished one and I went through it and it was about a year and a half's worth of content. And one of the things I'm starting to connect the dots on, and this is 
in alignment with everything we've been talking about is I don't like the individual one-on-one coaching, but I like being a hype man. And I came to you the other day. I was like, what is, what is our next evolution of right place right now look like? And we've talked about kind of the direction we want it to go. Maybe there's content that comes out of this. And, and I'm, I'm starting to piece these things together a little bit more clearly, right? Like, like Europe gave me some clarity to get the ball rolling, but now I'm in a place where I have enough data. And as I'm going through my journal, I'm catching these in my journal is like, Oh, today sucks. Why does it suck? And I ask myself really good questions. I think I ask myself really good questions to, to work myself through stuff. Like literally, why is this a pain point for me is what I'll ask. Why am I getting hung up on this? And then I'll just, throw my thoughts down and going back and reading all that is connecting a lot of pieces for me that like, I do enjoy this personal professional development space. And I love being a catalyst for people to take whatever they want to the next level. So what I think I'm starting to realize is how do I take all these things that I love, these skills that I have and build it so that it fits what I want it to be versus trying to shove it into like the ICF format of coaching or into the consulting format of the two companies I worked for before. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm having, I'm like currently getting these strokes of insight that are like, this is the direction, go here, try this, have this conversation. So some ideas, but not really clarity yet. Yeah. So what, uh, I know you said Sarah got laid off from two jobs Mm -hmm. and this last year has been pretty hectic for you. Tell me about this last year. Dude. So let's go back to 20, like middle of 2019. Cause that's really kind of where the story starts. Sarah and I are together for four or five years at this point. So I, I popped the question. We get married in October of 2019. You know, everything's great. We had a great time putting the wedding together the wedding, both of us had a bash at our wedding. You know, you hear the, some of those horror stories that people are like, we didn't even have fun at our own wedding. Like it was the party of our life. And it was a good time. Uh, yeah. We, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> we had FH beer works was in the house. Uh, it, it was so much fun. We had such a good time putting it together. We had such a good bonding moment. So many good bonding moments leading up to it because it really allowed us to figure out like, what do we want as far as like, what do we value? We had some really good, deep conversations that grew us in our relationship. Wedding happens, you know, you're kind of tired because you've been doing all this planning and and you're going through all the wedding stuff. So we were really just looking forward to some downtime. We we're going to pretty much just chill until 2020 and then kind of reevaluate and see what we wanted to do. 59 days after our wedding, Sarah's dad passes away with a heart attack unexpectedly. He's two weeks from his 60th, 60th birthday. He, he's healthy. He's running 5Ks. He's just out of nowhere, walking home from a restaurant one night. Heart attack falls over, side of the road. Devastating to Sarah, to her family. I... I'm kind of in this weird place to where I had only spent three or four times, you know, in, in, in short three, four hour segments with the guy. So I didn't know him really well. So I feel like I'm really missing a big part of her life and now it's gone. It's not there for me to ever learn about because her and her dad had a really unique close relationship. And, and it was, I'm not saying like it's the, 
the stereotypical father daughter oh my god it's cute like like they were hard on each other and they respected each other and you could tell that like their love for each other was different but it was so pure so so she loses her father in early december a couple weeks before his 60th birthday a couple weeks before christmas new years all that's a blur right like we don't even know that holidays happened into february she loses one job middle of march she loses her second job or maybe it was beginning of march middle of april something like that she's still in the fog from her dad passing away right and the company only gave her like you get four days of bereavement luckily the company that i work for they're like take the rest of the year off be there for her and support her so i took three weeks off and i was literally just trying to like keep her emotionally stable if you ever lost somebody that's close to you, which I, I honestly, I haven't, I've only been kind of like, like when Jason, Jason's probably, Jason is probably the closest person that I've lost. Right. And Jason and I weren't ever really close, but I grew up with Jason. So like, yeah, that, that's the most hurt I've felt with loss. I couldn't imagine what she's going through or what you went through being as close as you were. Yeah. And then it, it continues over the, the 2020 we lost a buddy who had was fighting battles of alcoholism which her father also that was kind of why he unexpectedly passed away is he had problems with alcoholism and he had been fighting it his whole life and he was on and off the wagon and and fighting his own demons right and he was a great dude it was just something he couldn't get away from and it caught up to him with heart failure unfortunately we, we lose another friend uh, who was a regular at the bar that we both worked with. We had both known for several years, battles with alcohol. Lose Sarah's grandpa to COVID. Lose two other friends. Sarah loses a really close friend from before she knew me. All in the period of like seven months, we lost. So Sarah's dad and then there's a gap, but then we lose like four or five more really good friends. And literally just... I think it's been about three weeks now. We lost another really good friend of ours. They just found him on his couch in the middle of the night, had a heart attack, and he was 50 years old. And to put all of that on top of COVID to where you can't distract yourself with anything. You do, you can't put yourself in anything to, to find opportunity, to find possibility, to just dull your senses for a moment to watch Sarah go through that. Like I had work at least I would come into this office, which is literally my spare bedroom. She would be in the living room when I would get off. Like she needed all my attention because she would just sit there and stew all day by herself. And it's like, we don't have an outlet. We don't have any resources because as you know, or what we learned is like, whenever you lose somebody that's close, everybody's really sad for you for about a month. And then they kind of just forget and go away. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone shows up for the funeral, but that goes away very quickly. Right. And then you're just stuck there holding this emptiness and you're like, what do I do with this? How do I process this? And through all of this, the the only thing I could do was try to be a foundation of consistency for her as she went through. You know, there's there's I've I've read several books at this point on what to do with grieving spouses. They all tell you the same thing. Like, there's no right way to do it. Just be there for them. And it's like, well, that's 
okay, that's helpful. But what does that mean? What do I do with that? And it, it, the good thing is, it's just reminded me to be patient. And actually, Aunt Teresa, your mom, she was beautiful whenever the first time we saw you guys afterwards, she goes, this is going to take several years. Just be patient. Yeah. And, and I have to remind myself that every day because we can be in the greatest spot together. And then all of a sudden something will remind Sarah of her dad and the wheels come off the bus. And it's not a problem. It's not like, Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. It's been a year. Like, no, like that's the healing. That's the growth. But how do I show up in that place to be the foundation, to be supportive, to not make her feel guilty or weird about it. It's, it's been a lot, man. Yeah. I, and that's like my wife's in this and not in, in anymore, but she was in the same position with me, man. Like Jason was my brother, my older brother, and we were best buds. Right. And he had a work accident that he got electrocuted and just, you know, I'd seen him the night before and uh, I was bartending and he hung out with me. And then he went home and his family was on vacation in Texas. And then the next day I get a call from his boss that, you know, he had had a work accident. I need to come down and, you know, and it, it changed everything changed in that instant. And so Nikki was that for me. And I, I was in rough shape, uh, after that for a good year plus, you know, we had that, the brewery was just 10 weeks old. And right. so we had to, we had this brand new business. And so it was all that I could do just to keep that up and running somewhat. And, you know, there's just no energy for anything else. Right. And Nikki has said the whole time, like it, it's really hard to be a, a second tier in the second tier of grief because she's got a whole family of people around her that need her. And she, you know, she didn't have any time or, or space to be to grieve. Right. You know, she's, she just continually has to show up as that support system. And that is exhausting too. Yeah. Our, our, the, the strength broke for me. It, it was kind of breaking a few months ago. And, but then after these last couple close friends passed away, I mean, when we lost our buddy Thomas a couple of weeks ago, it was just like a smack in the face of like, you know, 2021 came and everybody's exciting and we're getting vaccines and things are starting to open up and there's so much hope. And we're like, okay, we're, we're trying to buy our first house and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're working on planning our future, which gives hope and promise and opportunity. And it gets you out of that. Nothing's going for me and it feels good. And then boom, somebody that you literally, so he died. My birthday was on January 15th. And there are three close friends of me and two other people that all have birthdays within three days of each other. So Sarah and their spouses put together a beer, like a, a backyard Olympics for us, for our birthdays. It was awesome. Like there was 10 events. We were competing two teams, but it all came down to like the team that wins beer pong at the end wins the entire beer Olympics. And there were some like door prizes and stuff, but we're just out there. We're watching football on a projector outside. We're playing games. Everybody's drinking. Thomas is that dude who's always like chummy and talking and running his mouth. But he's also always that guy who whenever everybody's like a little bit buzzed and feeling good, he would pull you aside and he'd give you the tightest hug. And he'd be like, the thing he would say was like, man, you're 100. He had a little bit of a ghetto background. And, and what that meant was like, he's expressing his deepest love and admiration for you. And he, he never let that go. 
And then like he would tell me and Sarah all the time, you guys are 100. I love you guys. I want to find what you all have. I just appreciate you. You don't know what you mean to me. And it allowed us to, you know, express the same because he was the best human being, had his own demons, but he was such a good dude. And we're playing beer pong. He hits the last cup to win the overall beer Olympics for his team. He's flying high that night and he dies the next Wednesday. And like, we're there with him, man. And like, the one thing that I find a lot of peace in is like, I never spent time with Thomas and didn't know how those feelings didn't go unfelt or uncommunicated. And that's given me a lot of peace with him, but it makes me really sad because I think about the other people that we lost. I think about Sarah's dad and Sarah's dad's relationship because he was fighting with alcoholism was always kind of like in ebbs and flows. And they were kind of unfortunately in a place to where they were just getting back to center to where they could be with each other and express their feelings to each other. And everything was starting to be good again. And we lost him, man. It's so sad to leave that unsaid and leave it just on the table. Yeah. Gives you a little bit different perspective on how you want to treat people. huh? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what do you, I mean, what do we do with that going forward? How, how does, how does that change how you interact with people? So, that's a really good question. Or with yourself. Yeah. Like, really with yourself. Like what do you, what, what's your self-talk? Does that change your self-talk and does that change your, like how you see yourself? You know, it does. It, it obviously 100% does. And Sarah and I have had a lot of these conversations, especially for her. She's like, she's worked through the fog a little bit and she's starting to see some light shine through, which is really cool to see. It just makes me, you know, whenever your spouse is so sad, you can't do anything for them. Like there's, there's not a more defeating feeling in the world, especially like newly married. We'd been together for five years. Like it wasn't like, oh, I'm just new to this and uh, you'll get through it. It was like, we've already invested in this. And for her not to have any hope for anything is demoralizing. So that self-talk has to change because you have to switch from we're married. We've got all these future plans. We're going to work towards all this stuff. We're going to hit the ground running to just survive. Like right now, if we survive, we win. That was really hard for me because I'm the let's fix this. What's the next thing guy? Like that's who I am. And to sit in this space of, you know what? It's okay that we're going to, we literally binge watched 90210 was the first thing we binge watched. We went back and watched it because why not, man? Like I was off those first couple weeks and she was working remote. And honestly, she probably didn't get much done. Like it was ridiculous that they had her back in the office. She's doing IT support for travel and she'd sit on the couch and do work. And we will stream 90210 episodes. And that was really hard for me to just be okay with just be here, be present. You don't have to fix this because there is no fixing this. Like this is never fixed. This is the new reality, we just have to work through finding our peace with it. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. it. It will never be fixed and it will never be the same. So you have to adapt. Has it affected how you interact with other people? I think so. Um, I'm, I notice over time, I'm much slower to the judgment trigger of people. Uh, something that I've been super intentional in practicing though. And this was just kind of validation to that of, 
especially because of how some of our friends died fighting their battles with alcoholism or drug abuse or whatever. So out of the five, three people died either because of problems with drugs or alcoholism. But they were good people, man. They were amazing people that at the drop of a hat would do anything you needed from them. They just had their own demons. And I've I've realized like everybody's got their shit. It is not my place to judge. Like if if you're a terrible human to me, I, I can play that game all day. I'm great with that. But if you're just a good person that's struggling with some stuff, I just want to get to know you. I just want to feel your your pains and your excitements and and I've noticed that like I'm so much slower to be like that person opened their mouth and they're a stupid piece of trash. Like that was who I was in my 20s and I would call people on it. I was super aggressive. And now I just like feel so empathetic for people and I'm starting to realize like everybody's struggling in their own right and how they show up in the world has nothing to do with me. It's because of those struggles. And if anything good comes from the last year, I think it'll be my ability to invest more of myself. I've always kind of like left this wall up in my relationships because I'm the solo guy, right? Like I'm never fully fully expressed who I am or what I want from a relationship. And that's definitely changed for me. Like, I, I feel like I'm getting closer with my, for the first time ever, I called my mom and I just cried. I was like, I'm like, my parents are buying a new house. I'm going to cry now. My parents are finally retiring. They've been, they've had a plan since I was 12 years old to buy a house on a lake and retire on it and just chill. They're finally doing it. I'm so pumped for them. But with the year we had, I've had a really hard time getting exciting for it. My little brother, my middle brother, Quentin, he just had his first baby and he's the cutest freaking kid. I mean, Oliver's adorable and I haven't been had a chance to get out to North Carolina and meet him yet. But like, I am not in a place or haven't been in a place to be excited for any of them just because of the year that we've had. I just have a hard time getting excited about anything, if I'm being honest. And I called my mom and I was like, I just need to apologize. I was like, don't say anything. Just listen for a second. I was like, I feel so bad because you guys are going through this and I can't even be there to support you or be excited for you. And it's just my own, right? Like I'm supposed to be that guy. I'm the, I'm the oldest brother. I'm an adult now. They're retiring. I should be in a place to help them and be excited for them. And we just haven't been. And I have a ton of guilt for that. Yeah. Well, that's tough. That That's a tough place to be is when something external like that is just affecting everything you do and there's not really a way out of it. It's just time and patience and waiting and healing. Right. But that, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen overnight. So, I mean, I think just the, the, the awareness yeah. in that, in that statement, in that phone call, I, I think that will, for lack of better words, I guess like mend some of those bridges that you feel are, are kind of tattered, yeah. you know, when you in your relationship with your parents and stuff, just making that phone call and opening up that dialogue and, and being open and transparent. Uh, I, I, you know, that that's kind of becoming a pattern in what we talk about with people is just right. the transparency, the openness and the, the willingness to be honest and, and put it out there. Like, like I don't have this all figured out and none of us do. And like, we all have demons. We all have things we struggle with. The The fact that you can pick up the phone and, start that conversation with your mom, I, I think is tangible evidence of the growth Yeah, from this last year. 
Yeah. And those are things that I won't notice until I go back and read my journal. And that is something I'm, I'm a junkie for practical application. I would recommend to anybody is when you're going through just journal. And then once you feel like you're getting close to getting through it, go back and read it because it's, it sheds so much light on these type of things. Like you were able to see that now. I wouldn't be able to see that for eight or 10 months whenever I look back on it. Yeah. And I, I think that's a skill and a, a habit that you can take and I, I think the more that we can do that with the people in our lives, the better those relationships and just like the better everyone's life is going to be. Mm-hmm. Like if we let's just freaking be honest with each other. Right. Yeah. Because other people, and that's the thing with this, you have been a huge support. My buddy Chili, he had like literally just lost his grandpa kind of about the same time Sarah lost hers. So it brought up all those emotions for her again. He was super close with his grandpa and it was like, We've got a community of people that have gone through this and it was really hard for me at first because again we got to do this on our own that's what you do that's everybody that we've talked to they all think that they have to do this in their vacuum in their silo and figure it out otherwise they're a failure and i kind of just was like that's crap man like there are books on this there are people that have been through this and it just started with reading and then it started with like you know there are other people that have lost also can we talk about it just together and be like, Hey, this sucks. And I'm lost. And I have no idea what to do with myself, my time, my life. I don't care about anything or anyone. And they would go, yeah, me neither. And I'd be like, okay, that's all I needed to hear really is okay. I'll get through this right now. It's okay to not give a crap about anything. Yep. There's gotta be more conversation and more openness about that in, in general, in our culture. Yeah, for sure. It just like, and we're all going through stuff. Yep. Let's uh let's help each other and stop right. stop holding it in. Yeah. So that's been the year. And it led us to honestly, there like I said, there are a couple points where I was about to break and and we would, you know, Sarah and I would have our spats because there's a lot of tension and pressure, right? And we found ourselves like not not being who we were when we came to this relationship, not being who we appreciated about the other person. So I had to put together some really intentional practices to try to keep myself on track. Uh, We just talked about this the other day. I think I told you. I set a reminder on my phone that like every day at 7.30, whenever I get up, it just says, be sweet. And that's that's what Sarah says to me whenever I'm kind of being a jerk to her. And I'm like picking on her. She goes, be sweet. So I get this reminder. And for a while, what it did is I would just write her. I would get a dry erase marker and just write her a little note on the mirror just whatever I thought of that day. Like some days it would be like, I really appreciate you for these specific things that you do. And it could be super evolved. The next day it could be like, I like the way you work it, no diggity. And that's all it said, right? And and doing those things intentionally, which is not easy for me. I'm not a natural romantic like that. I just had to set an alarm and remind myself like this was important because of where we're at. And I wrote it for, I wrote it until like we took a vacation and then we kind of fell off the the map. But like just yesterday, Sarah wrote me a note and we hadn't done it in a bunch of months. And I was like, okay, here we go. This is progress. We're getting, I'm starting to feel like we're getting back to ourselves. We're getting back to like, you can tease each other and it's not super sensitive because before, you know, six months ago, whenever we're in it, one person would be in a good mood and they take a jab and the other person wouldn't be. And it would just... Yeah, Like you're so self-conscious about everything when you're dealing with that uncertainty and that pain that everything is a personal attack. And we're starting to get through that. Yeah. And it, it seems like COVID is kind of fixing, you know, itself 
like we're, we're kind of coming on the tail end of COVID. There's vaccines out. There's, you know, places are starting to open back up. So what's your hope for 2021? What do you want this year to look like for you, for your, like just in all aspects? 2020 year is going to be a year of change. I mean, I've already, I, I, like I said, I go through seasons and I know when the writing's on the wall. And that doesn't mean like I've got to get out because things are falling apart, but it's like, I've been in this cocoon long enough. I need to break it out and go and fly. And then I'll build another cocoon later and I'll get out of it. So we've started looking at because Sarah's dad passed away. She's got a younger sister with a new baby. We're looking at moving back to where she, her hood, mostly because we want to start, we want to buy a house. We want to start getting into some investment stuff. Denver's market is way too expensive. We can't buy a house here because we don't, we didn't have a windfall, <laughs> quite honestly. <laughs> like, it's just too expensive for us to be here now. And being back around her family, there's some healing there. It's a different, you know, it's just outside of Chicago. It's a different thing for me. I'm excited. Like, I move away from Colorado every four or five years. This is a pattern of mine. You'll be back. Uh, yeah, Sarah and I talk about that all the time. She's like, I'm really miss the mountains. I'm like, don't worry about it. They'll be here when we get back. It, it's It's a time for change. It's a time for... We actually just talked to a lender yesterday to start getting the ball rolling, figuring out what we need to do. There's possibility again. And we're talking about what does this look like in five years? Uh, you know, there's there's a lot that goes into, we're not ones to just buy a house because we want to buy a house and live in it and raise a family for the next 20 years. We're like, okay, let's do this for three. And then what is our goal next? And having those conversations and, and this year specifically with the podcast going to be released, moving. Um, I've already set some very intentional goals of being more involved in the community down there than I am here. Uh, it's a smaller city. So I think I can get involved in kind of like a, at a level that allows me to actually have some impact. Um, we're like in Denver, I feel like I've kind of gotten lost and just in the noise. I think 2021 is going to be a year of shaking it up for the sake of shaking off all that loose dead energy, all the the grief and hardship that we felt from 2020, uh, the COVID. Man, honestly, if there's one thing that we're looking for the most, we were supposed to go to Germany for our honeymoon. My wife, Sarah, is a huge Pearl Jam fan. I actually proposed at a Pearl Jam weekend in Seattle. So we were going to go see Pearl Jam play two shows in Germany in June of last year. And obviously that got canceled. It was like the Wednesday and Saturday. It was going to be freaking sweet. Uh, we're going to take three weeks, go do that. They rescheduled it for this year, but that's already getting rescheduled. We think live music is the thing we're looking most forward to because it is like every <laughs> year, every summer, that's how we spend our time. And it's what fills us up. And we just love concerts and events and we haven't had any of that. So if that's the smallest thing that comes out of it, that'll be a win. Yeah, no, that's a win for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, cool, man. It's uh, It's been a really fun conversation. It's probably time to wrap up. But what uh, is there? Is there anything else that you want people to know about you, about what we're doing, about what you're doing? Um, I don't think there's anything else I'd like them to know about me and what I'm doing. That'll come out. But I, I will, I guess, leave with this is like in these opportunities of really rough depression is what it is, right? I didn't even know that until recently um, in the dark moments. Like there's there's moments where you're going to ask yourself, I, I don't think I can get through this or can I get through this? And your answer to yourself is probably no. 
That's what it was for me. I was like, I can't continue to do this. And for me, that was a very insightful answer because it was like, okay, that means I need something to change or modify. So if you find yourself having a hard time asking yourself those questions, like you're not alone, ask somebody else. And that's what led me to asking someone else is, hey, we're going through this in this way and it's draining and killing both of us. How did you guys get through it? Reach out, build a community, find some people. You don't have to do it on your own. That would be the thing that I took from all of this is your peer group. We have some friends that Sarah and I joke all the time, like they saved her life. She's she's a little morbid. She goes, if it wasn't for these people, you'd found me hanging from a shower curtain. And I'm like, what? Remind me to thank those people. <laughs> well, and that that's, I, I think just to add to that one quick point, it doesn't have to be because somebody died. Like that can be anything. Yeah. Valid point. What are you struggling with? Yeah. Get some help. Take it to people. Find a community. Doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. The emotions are the same. If you're struggling with weight loss or finding a job or my friends that were fighting with alcoholism and find support, find help. I think it all just, it it comes down to the feeling of hopelessness. Yeah. It doesn't matter what caused it. Exactly. So if you're feeling hopeless, there is hope out there and there are people who will come beside you and support you. Yep. Well, man, thanks for, thanks for being open. Thanks for being honest. Yep. Um, I love hearing about all the crazy things you've done <laughs> and I can't wait to see what you do, what we do in the future. I, I think there's a lot of hope in that. Yep. I'm excited. We're changing the world, changing lives. Brandon Johnson, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Well, we will talk to you guys next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.